Well, indeed, it is a treat and privilege for us to have God's Word in our language, for us to be able to read the words of the living God for us, and each week for us to come and gather together corporately around and under His Word that we might be exhorted, we might be instructed, that He might teach us. And so let's ask God's blessing and help as we come to His Word this morning. Our God and Father, we give you praise because you are the self-existent one. You are the uncreated one. You are the one that existed in all eternity past as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are your creatures. We are your creation. And so we lift up our voices, our hearts, our minds to praise you. To declare that there is none like you. And Father, we recognize as we come to your word that the truth found within it is simple enough for a child to understand and yet deep enough for scholars to never plumb the depths. And so we ask as we approach it this morning that you would give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, and hearts that are soft to hear what you have for us. We ask that your spirit might do a work even during this hour. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, indeed, it is Mother's Day, and Mother's Day is a time in which many sentimental thoughts come to mind, no doubt for even you. We all love the woman who spent so much to care for us and to bring us up. We have great affection for the one who made us such wonderful meals, who gave us great hugs when we needed them most, and who sacrificed so much that we might be who we are today. And so Mother's Day often brings sweet images of home life, of the memories that we have growing up. And yet, even with these lovely, happy images, sometimes of even idyllic home life, there, it doesn't tell the whole story. Even as we reflect upon our own childhood, we recognize that we tend to remember all of the good things about life. Sometimes the not-so-good things fade into memory. But the reality is we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. Sin has infected every part of society, has infected every one of us, and therefore the devastation of sin is all around us. Broken families, death and disease. We indeed are not yet living in heaven on earth. And indeed, for some of you, Mother's Day might even be one of those reminders of the pain and fallenness of this world. It's not maybe the same day of rejoicing that it may be for others. For some, Mother's Day may be actually kind of painful. Maybe your relationship with your mother is strained, and therefore you feel the pain of that relationship. Maybe you've lost your mother, and the pain of her loss 
still stings your heart on this day. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've miscarried a child or several. And therefore, Mother's Day, the opportunity to be a mother on this day, sits painfully upon your heart. For these reasons and more, Mother's Day isn't always the idyllic happy day that we want it to be because we live in a fallen world. But in the midst of this fallenness, we can be comforted to know that this is the same world that Jesus entered into. Jesus, God in human flesh, walked upon this earth and lived among us, humanity. He experienced the fallenness and the brokenness of this world except for the internal sin that we experience. And so, as I said, it's comforting to know that Jesus knows and Jesus understands what life in this broken, fallen world is like. But more than that, not just that he understands this world, but Jesus came to provide help and hope for sinners and for sufferers. In other words, he didn't just get into the muck and the mud with us so that he could feel the same way we do. He got in so that he could get us out. He got in the muck of this world, the sinfulness, the fallenness of this world, so that he could redeem us and rescue us up out of the fallenness. Our text today in Luke 8 reminds us of Jesus' compassion, his love, and his power to overcome the fallenness of this world. We're going to see this through two episodes. One about a woman who has a medical condition, been suffering for 12 years. The other about a girl, 12 years old, who's, who is on the brink of death and then passes away. And in these episodes, Jesus is ministering his power and his love in the midst of this brokenness that's all around him. And so I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 8. If you're not there already, we'll be studying verses 40 through 56 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some provided for you in the pew racks directly in front of you, and you'll find our passage for this morning on page 1029. 1029. So I invite you to follow along as I read Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went... The people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, 
Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched that why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But talking, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. These episodes, which are interwoven together about these two women, challenge us to trust Jesus, even when we're faced with suffering and trials. And so from, these, from this passage this morning, we're going to learn to trust Jesus in four different situations of life in this fallen world. Learn to trust Jesus in four different situations in this fallen world. And so we're going to learn this first of, of all, to trust Jesus when troubles befall. And we see this in verses 40 through the first part of 42, through 42a. We learn to trust Jesus when troubles befall. Verse 40, our passage begins when Jesus returns from a trip across the Sea of Galilee. He had traveled over there, as we saw last week, in order to reach the Gentiles with the gospel, to proclaim who he was, to reveal himself, and to reach those Gentiles with the truth. While he's there, he freed a man who had a demon, uh, really thousands of demons, a demon named Legion, and so as he cast that, those demons out of the man, and he went, the demons went into the herd of pigs, ran off down the hill and into the water, and the people there in that region were afraid, and they asked Jesus to leave. And so he honors their requests and gets into a boat and heads back across the lake or the Sea of Galilee. And so verse 40 says that he returned. And as he's pulling up to the shore, it says that there is a crowd that welcomed him. They were all waiting. Uh, they were all waiting for him. He has a crowd there that have been waiting for him to return. Now the text doesn't tell us exactly how long he was on that boating trip, how long he had gone across the Sea of Galilee, how long he was over there, and how long it took then for him to get back. Some tend to think it was only a day. I think it could have been easily two or three. The text doesn't quite tell us. But the point is, is that they were all camped out there on the shore of the sea. They were, 
they were all there uh, waiting for him to come back. They knew he would. They knew he wasn't going to stay in Gentile territory for long. He would come back to the Jewish side. I think of those images of all of the Apple fanboys who waited day after day outside an Apple store just to get an iPhone, right? And there's tents, and they're all waiting for the doors to open and for them to get an iPhone. So these Jesus fanboys were all camped out on the shore of the Sea of Galilee waiting for this miracle worker to come back. And they welcomed him, it says. I have to imagine some may have even cheered. Hey, wait, that's, that's the teacher. He's coming back. Wait, what, what? And the murmur starts beginning, and they all begin to cheer, and they're welcoming him to come back. They're happy to see him. And it's here as he's getting out of the boat and beginning to mix this crowd that's thronging around him that a man approaches him. Verse 41, it says, There was a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. This meant that he had an important place within the local religious community there. He was the one who would order the religious service when they would gather there in the synagogue. He was choosing who would read the the scripture, what order it would go in. And so he would have been a well-respected man within the community. People would have recognized that this one set the order, was somewhat of a religious leader there within this community. It seems best to place this probably within the vicinity of Capernaum. As he spent most of his time there on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he had, when he had gone, he simply, the text simply says he came back to this general region where he spent most of his time. And so we believe, scholars believe this is the ruler of the synagogue there in Capernaum. And so this man was dignified. He was well-respected. And he would have been well sought after. Those who saw him around town would have recognized for the religious stature that he had. And yet here we see in this text that he's not walking with, around with an air of dignity. He is falling on the ground. He's falling at Jesus' feet. He is a desperate man today. Normally people are going to him, but now today he's going to one who is greater than himself. And so falling at Jesus' feet, he shows his desperation. He shows the great need that he's in, but he's also showing his respect and his honor for Jesus. He doesn't fall before Jesus' feet because he's not quite sure who Jesus is. He's recognizing in pure desperation that Jesus must meet his need, that Jesus is the one who's able to actually do something for him. In other words, he's recognizing that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is powerful. And so by his falling at his feet, he's confessing that Jesus is able to do something that he cannot. Why does he go to Jesus? Why is he so desperate? Verse 42 tells us that he has an only daughter, about 12 years of age, who is dying. Today, this man is not acting as a member of his community, acting as a representative of the synagogue. Today, this man is acting as a desperate father. His sweet little girl 
is at home dying. A 12-year-old girl would have just passed into adulthood in Jewish society. She could have been eligible for marriage, her life ahead of her, maybe even begin to have children soon. But Mark, the Gospel of Mark records the man, Jairus calling her a little girl. And I think this is the reality that even though she may have stepped into adulthood legally, as all fathers of daughters know, that our daughters always remain our little girls at some level. And so it's, it's, he's confessing how dear she is to him. We don't know if she's been ill for a long time. Has she had an illness her whole entire life and now it's finally coming to the end? Or did, was there an accident or some sort of sudden illness that suddenly came upon her and caused her to quickly decline? We don't know. But what it seems is that if, he's, if he has tried any other options to heal his daughter, that all those options have dried up. That now he is, he is recognizing that Jesus is his only option. He is depending completely on Jesus. In other words, he's essentially saying, Jesus, if you don't help my daughter, then all is lost. My daughter is lost if you don't help me. It all rests on you. I'm not trusting in anything or anyone else. My trust is all on you. So please come to my house and heal my daughter. This man's pleas must have caused a silence within the crowd as they recognized this great dignified man falling on his knees before the Lord. Recognizing that Jairus is not just there because Jesus is some wonder worker and he's fascinated by this new teacher. No, Jairus is, is not just fascinated. He's actually taking action, showing that he has faith. And so he hears this man's plea, and he agrees to go. Well, in these few verses, I believe we can pull out this lesson for us. And that is that we must trust Jesus even when troubles befall and afflict us. Even when troubles and difficulty and suffering come into our lives, that we too can trust Jesus. We too can depend upon him. We know that as I even began this morning, life in this world is one in which there is often great suffering and great heartache. There's trouble all around us. Difficulties and afflictions come our way. And I know even for those of us in this room right now that we represent many of those in our own lives. The pains that we bear. And we live with the reality that devastating, unexpected news could be right around the corner for us, right? We fear that we'll receive that phone call that someone we love has passed. We're afraid the doctor will tell us that we or someone we love only has a short time to live. We fear we won't be able to provide for our family. We fear something will happen to our children. Essentially, we, we fear the prospect of bad news. We fear the reality that something bad could be just around the corner. Well, folks, this father received bad news. Jairus received the news that his daughter was dying. He was told his daughter was in her final moments. And this could be a time of great panic and to be destroyed, but instead it, it causes him in his desperation to go to Jesus. 
he recognized that Jesus was his only hope. His, it was his only option. And so he goes to Jesus and trusts him to heal his daughter. And from this, we, we ask ourselves, where, where do we go when troubles befall us? When we receive that unexpected news, when we hear that, that, that trouble has come into our life, the suffering has hit a family member, where do we turn? What's our instinct? Where, do our heart, where does our heart flee to? Do we go to Jesus? Do we turn to him recognizing that our only hope is in him? That he is the one who is all-powerful and able to help. That there is hope found in no one else. What do you trust to carry you through the difficulties of life? We can't turn to our possessions and our wealth thinking that we just pack our lives with enough stuff to make ourselves feel good that that's going to be able to carry us through. Those things all end up being empty. We can't trust the people around us for as loyal as they are, whether friends or family, they ultimately don't know the intricacies of our hearts. But Jesus does. Jesus knows what's going on inside each one of us. He knows the pains that you bear. He knows the fears that you have, the anxieties, the things that hurt so deeply. Only Jesus can care for you when troubles befall. Jesus is our rock of refuge when everything else is shifting around us. And so as the hymn says, church, we must arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace us in his arms, in his arms of our, of our dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. May we learn that whenever Troubles come our way that we run to our Savior. So that's the first lesson we learn is to trust Jesus when troubles befall. But the second lesson we learn from this text is to trust Jesus when disease cripples. Trust Jesus when disease cripples. Look at verse 42. The second half of the verse says, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Verse 43, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. The ESV here splits 42 into two paragraphs because the second half seems to be leading up to set the stage, the scenario for this woman we're about to meet. It says that Jesus is on his way to Jairus' home and he's pressed in by the crowds. Presuming the event of Jairus falling at the feet of Jesus took place on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, then, then as Jesus agrees to go to Jairus' house, it's probably somewhere within Capernaum, and so they begin to make their way into the city. There had to have been gobs of people, multitudes of people, and so as they're trying to funnel their way into this first century village of Capernaum, it is slammed to capacity. Uh, in addition to all of the normal residents, there's all of these multitudes that are there, and they're all wanting to be with Jesus and see what's about to happen. And so they're, the text says that he's, they're pressing around him. This word for pressing is literally choked. It's the same word used uh, earlier in the chapter of the thorns that choked out the good seed. And so they're saying that these people are all in and around Jesus. I mean, this crowd has got to be moving so slow. I mean, kind of the, the penguin walk, right? Trying to go through the streets of Capernaum. And you just have to wonder that Jairus 
has got to be a little bit anxious, right? Jesus, can you please hurry up here? My, my daughter is on her, did, on her deathbed. Did you not hear me? Can't you, like, cause the Red Sea of people to part here and, and be able to get to my house? But this is the situation. And in God's providence, this is the way it is to go slowly enough for a woman to meet Jesus. Verse 43 introduces us to the second female of the passage. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. It's a a bleeding problem that she had and that this flow or discharge of blood would not stop. Now, scholars are agreed that this was most likely a uterine hemorrhage. And in Jewish society, this would have been devastating for her. This was not just a medical problem that she kept to herself and tried to deal with on her own. This is something that dramatically affected her life. Leviticus 15 is the part of the law, the Old Testament law, that gave instructions to the Jews on who was ceremonially clean and who was unclean. In Verses in Leviticus 15, 19 to 24, it specifies that a woman in her normal menstrual period was considered unclean, but once that was over, she could be purified and be considered clean again. But then in verse 25 of Leviticus 15, it goes on to describe a woman who bleeds on past her monthly cycle, and and that bleeding continues. And it makes clear that she is unclean for as long as that blood flows. And so this is what we can know about this woman that we meet here in verse 43. She has lived a life where she is ceremonially unclean 24-7. We don't know when it started. It could have started when she went through puberty. It could have started sometime later. But because of this condition, she either never married or she very well may have gotten a divorce because of the inability to have children and inability for to consummate with her husband. And so she's essentially lived as a social outcast for 12 years, being unclean. And this has affected all her relationships because the law says that anything she sits on is unclean. Anything she touches is unclean. And so therefore, no one's inviting her into their home. No one's spending time with her. No one's giving her a hug because they're not going to become unclean and be soiled, and then have to go through the cleansing process. In fact, rabbis refused to even touch any other woman that was their wife in fear that they might become unclean. And so this woman that we meet here in verse 43 is a lonely, suffering woman. Now in verse 43 here, after describing her condition, the ESV, along with the King James Version, the New King James Version, and the Christian Standard Bible have some words, a phrase that some translations like the NASB or the NIV do not. The phrase in question says this in the ESV. It says, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, spent all her living on physicians. And for those of you with the ESV, you'll notice there is a a footnote that takes you down and tells you that some manuscripts don't have that phrase. 
So what's going on here? Well, basically, the scholars are undecided, and that's why you have trans- some translations have it and some don't. But essentially, the book of Mark has a phrase like this that talks about how much she spent on doctors trying to be healed of this condition. And yet, the, the phrase found here in Luke is a little nicer to doctors than Mark's account. Mark says that she spent all her living on doctors, and it actually made her worse. Luke here, who is a physician himself, probably doesn't want to throw the physicians under the bus in the same way. And so he mentions that she spent all she had on physicians, but doesn't mention her worsening condition. And so in that way, it seems like it very well could be original. But there are some manuscripts that do not have it. And that is why some tend to think that it was added in later, maybe borrowed from Mark by later scribes. But in the end, it could go either way. But the fact that Mark mentions this fact means that it really is true and did happen, whether it's included here in Luke or not. And so it says that she spent her life savings trying to find healing. So not only is she destitute of friends, but she's destitute of money as well. She spent everything she has trying to be healed. She is out of options. And so she goes to Jesus. Mark tells us that she had heard reports about Jesus. We don't know where she lived. Was she on the outskirts of the city? Was she in another town? But she'd heard about this this miracle worker. And she got the idea, maybe if I just touch his clothes, I can just touch the, the fringe of his garment, then maybe I'll be healed. And so she decides that day she's going to go. She hears reports that Jesus is going to come back. And so she moves towards where Jesus is at. She joins the throng of people that are traveling with Jesus, penguin style, through the streets of Capernaum. And I have to imagine that she disguised herself in some way, put on a different shawl, put on something that that people wouldn't be able to point out to her and say, what are you doing here? And, And throw her out of the crowd. Somehow she had to get to Jesus. But the text says she's able to make her way right up behind him. Verse 44, she came up behind him, it says. And then it says she reached out and touched the fringe of his garment. This most likely refers to the tassels that Jewish people had to wear that would remind them of the law. They were commanded in the book of Numbers to wear tassels that would remind them of the law and the commandments. And so Jesus would have this shawl upon him and he, she touches the fringe, the tassels of his garment. In verse 44, notice the word immediately. Immediately she is healed and her discharge of blood ceased. She found immediate healing as she went to Jesus with full expectation, with full faith of his ability to heal her. In other words, she trusted Jesus in the midst of her condition. And friends, I think this is another lesson for us to learn. Is that whatever disease we might have, whatever physical condition might afflict us, that we too can trust Jesus. No matter the medical condition. Jesus is the one that we must trust. In fact, it is sometimes these health issues that can cause us to grow the most anxious. Isn't that not true? We find our fear and anxiety rising up within us with surgeries and treatments 
and wondering, when is this going to end? What is the future? How can I find answers? And yet, we must learn from this woman that only in Jesus can we find hope. Only in Jesus can we trust. Now, we can pray, and we do pray, that God would heal. That God would, would heal our broken bodies. That he would, he would heal our diseases and cure us. That's the right thing to pray. But we recognize that that's not always his will for us. That God has many purposes with uh, for how he uses suffering and, and afflictions in our lives. Sometimes he heals us in accordance with his will, and sometimes he's got bigger purposes for us, using pain and suffering, sickness and disease in our lives to make us more like Christ. These are sufferings that chisel us into the image of Jesus. And so sometimes he takes us to those places he gives these things in our lives in his sovereign will that we might come out the other side more looking like his son. Because you see, God's priority is greater than our physical health. God's priorities in our lives is our conformity to Christ. And he will stop at nothing to make that a, a reality in our lives. And that is hard for us to swallow. It's hard for us to accept. But what we need to realize from this text is that no, no sickness, no disease, no medical condition is more powerful than Jesus. There is no maverick molecules, as, as R.C. Sproul used to say, no maverick molecules in this universe. All of them are in submission to the Creator. And so there is no disease that can run rampant without, outside of God's control. There is no bacteria, no virus, no genetic abnormality which is able to thwart God's plan for us. God is in control. God is all-powerful. And so we can trust him in the midst of our health issues. And so in the end, friends, we might not see the disease cured in this life. We may not see the sickness cured. But we know in the end, the one who has power over death and hell, the one who has power over sickness, is ultimately able to banish all of that from this earth. We look forward to the, the kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth when there will be no more sickness, when there will be no more death, and God Almighty will, will vanquish it from this earth. And that is our ultimate hope. But until that point, we live in this fallen world, as we've said. And we must trust Jesus to carry us through. We must trust him. How do we trust him in the midst of our disease, in the midst of our health issues? We rely upon him. We go to him as this woman and as Jairus did. And we say, our only hope is in you, Jesus. You must carry us through this. If you don't carry us through, we will not get through. My faith will fail. And so we, we, we bank everything upon him. He is our rock of refuge that we rest on. And he's glorified and he's honored when we throw ourselves completely upon the rock of ages to recognize that we are trusting him 100%. Yes, we go through treatment. Yes, we pursue doctors, but we do it under the sovereign almighty hand of God, recognizing that he is the one who's sovereign over all of this and, if, and that God's purposes will ultimately be done. 
And so we must learn to trust Jesus in, any, in everything that comes our way, including diseases and medical conditions that are painful and that cause us great suffering. We know that our God is good. We know that Jesus is powerful and he is able to carry us through. So we learn to trust Jesus when troubles befall. We learn to trust Jesus when disease cripples. And thirdly, we trust Jesus when sin shames. We learn to trust Jesus when sin shames in verses 45 through 48. Now, as we move to this next stage of the narrative with this woman, one might ask how these verses speak of the shame of sin. And I admit that it doesn't pop out of the text in a very uh, strong, explicit way, but I believe it's there, and I will explain it to you as such as we go through it. So after this woman is healed, again, the jostling crowd, and she happens to squeeze her hand through and grab a hold of his garment, and she instantly knows that she's been healed, and she begins to back away. She may have stopped and stood still, and the crowd moves on, and she recognizes the great miracle that's been worked in her body. She now would like to shrink away. She'd love to get away from this scene. Her, her, her prayers have been answered. She's, she's received the healing that she needs, and so she wants to go away unseen. But notice that Jesus is not going to let her do that. Because, you see, she needed more than just her body being healed. She needed her soul saved. One author put it this way. He said, for his own sake, Jesus would gladly have let the miracle go unobserved by the wonder-loving multitude. But for the woman's sake, he, wouldn't, he, he would not have it so. Had she been suffered to steal away, she would have lost the chief blessing of her life. She would have gained the healing of her body, but she would have missed the healing of her soul. She would have proved the power of Jesus, but she would have remained a stranger to his love. And so Jesus, desiring to lovingly minister to this woman, he halts the, the crushing crowds and asks a question, who was it that touched me? And you just have to imagine, nobody else knows what's going on. They're all jostling through, trying to make their way. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And everyone's kind of standing there looking around and like, um, what, what do you mean, right? They're all thinking that. And, he, and there's a moment of silence as Jesus is waiting for someone to answer. And it says, verse 45, that all denied it. No one were like, no, not me. I don't know you, not me. And so Captain Obvious, the Apostle Peter, <laughs> then uh, says, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. They're all like, yes, Peter, we know, okay? We feel it too, okay? <laughs> but this woman, she realizes that Jesus knows. Jesus knows, and he's not going to move on without her coming forward. And yet, no doubt, this is actually her greatest fear. She does not want to be outed, and, and no doubt, Jesus asking this question suddenly struck fear into her heart. Palms get sweaty. She is mortified that Jesus would suddenly notice it and that all eyes were going to be on her. She had come in secrecy, She'd got healed, 
And now Jesus is seeking to identify her. She's like, anything but that. Send me a note later, Jesus. Don't highlight me now. And so Jesus stays on this. Doesn't let this woman get away. Doesn't let the situation pass on by. And so notice it says, verse 47, or Jesus says in answer to Peter, he said, but Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. This is the only place where Jesus says that he feels the power going out of him and that it was a miracle that took place without seemingly his conscious effort. Every other miracle, Jesus makes a move towards somebody and heals them, or he speaks a word and heals them. But here, he's going along his merry way, and a miracle happens in the providence of God as this woman touches the fringes of his garment. We don't know exactly what Jesus felt, but he knew that he had been used by God to heal someone. And so we need to ask, when Jesus is asking this question, did he know who touched him? Like, was he really in the dark and really is like, Listen, guys, I'm not moving anywhere until someone says something because I have no idea who touched me. Or is he actually no, and he's just asking a question to draw her out? Obviously, we know that Jesus uh, was a man with limited knowledge upon this earth. Yes, he was God, but he laid aside the use of some of his attributes while he was here. And, uh, but on the other hand, we know that he could be using questions to draw out this woman. I'm reminded of, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? They sin, they disobey, and then, they, then God shows up, and God asks, Adam, where are you? We know that God knows where Adam is. There's no question. God's not like, shoot, I lost him again. You know, he's looking around, okay? No, he knows where Adam's at, but he's asking because he wants Adam to come forward. It does something for Adam to make him acknowledge and answer the call of God. And so I believe, in a sense, Jesus is doing that here, knowing that it's going to do something for the woman to answer his call. In verse 47, look at it. When the woman saw she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Notice the note of how she, her emotional state. She is trembling. I mean, her legs probably barely work, and so the falling is not too hard. She's just, and just is trembling with fear that all these eyes are upon her, that she's being called out. Remember also that she's unclean. She's been avoided. She's been ostracized. And she has received, no doubt, on many occasions, every week, the calling out of people to get away from her to get away from me because you're unclean. She's felt the ostracization of the community, and she may be afraid that she's about to receive that in ten times fold in the midst of this crowd. But she goes, Jesus is the one who called her, and so she comes and falls down before him and declares in the presence of all the people what happened. And notice that she notes that she was immediately healed. It was not progressively began to feel better, but instantly healed. A complete miracle. So as Jesus witnesses this, sees this woman take this, this step of faith and falling down and declaring what has taken, has taken place, Jesus then moves towards her with compassion and tenderness. 
And to this trembling woman, look what he says in verse 48. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is the only woman that we have recorded in which Jesus calls her daughter. This is the term of tenderness. This is the term of affection. Recognizing that she is part of his family. He's, she is a daughter of God. And even though the community might reject her, she is accepted. She is brought in. She is as a daughter. He addresses her as family. And in this, I believe, even in the title daughter, he's revealing that something more than physical healing is going on here. He's healing the whole person. And what is happening here, I believe, is salvation. Is that this woman is hearing the assurance of salvation from Jesus himself. Because Jesus brings in faith. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. This verb translated made you well is really the Greek word for salvation. And, and so it could be translated, daughter, your faith has saved you. Now, some translations uh, generally shy away from that because it sounds like it can be a works-based salvation in which faith saves uh, rather than the grace of God that saves. But we know from this text and from the teaching of the Bible is that it's her faith that trusted in Jesus' power to save. She put herself in a position to receive the grace of God. She trusted in what Jesus could do and therefore she was saved. If she didn't trust in Jesus, she wouldn't have gone to him. She wouldn't have made an effort to push through the crowd. She would not have touched his garment, but she did believe. And by believing, she put herself in the position to be transformed by Jesus. When she touched the tassel of his garment, she was transformed physically. When she spoke, when Jesus spoke these words, she was transformed spiritually. Jesus is speaking words of forgiveness here. These, in fact, are the same exact words other than the term daughter that he spoke to that prostitute at the end of chapter 7 in which he declared her forgiven and told her she could go on in peace. Same words here. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And the case is the same in both. These, both these women, the prostitute in chapter 7, this woman with the flow of blood in chapter 8, they have been saved spiritually. They are new women. Their lives have been transformed. And so Jesus tells her that she can go in peace. She can go in peace. She's at peace physically, for her body is restored. She's at peace socially, for now she is able to be restored to society as a clean woman. And most importantly, she's at peace spiritually. Because by trusting in Jesus, she's been forgiven of her sins. And here is where I see a lesson for us to be able to draw from this account. Every single one of us here has a sin problem. As I opened this morning, we live in a fallen world that is not only outside of us, but is also inside of us. The Bible says that there is none who are righteous. None of us get off the hook. None of us can wear the righteous sticker. We all stand guilty before the bar of God's justice. No matter how good we think we are, we don't measure up. And so our tendency in the midst of our sin and our shame is to hide. 
Ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first sinned and they covered themselves with fig leaves and tried to hide themselves from the presence of God, so sinners ever since then have tried to hide from God's holiness. We cannot stand to be near the one who is so holy and so pure and we feel ashamed and we know it because we try to make ourselves look better than we really are. We can't grasp and come to grips with the reality of how deep our depravity is, how deep our sin is. But in the quiet moments of our hearts and our lives, we know the things that go on in our heads. We know the things that we have done. In fact, even the things that we think are good and we think should earn us a badge of of notoriety are things that are stained with sin. Our righteous deeds are, are as filthy rags, the Bible says. And on that great judgment day, if we try to bring all of those righteous deeds out, it's going to look like a pile of trash. More than that, it's a, it's a pile of refuse. It is a stench in God's sight. But this account reminds us that just like this woman needs to, had to come trembling and falling before Jesus, so each one of us in our state and our sin must come before Jesus to find forgiveness. Only he is able to fully save Only he is able to guarantee that we are at peace with God, at peace with God eternally, not just momentarily. But when he declares us at peace, we are at peace. We are reconciled to our creator because what was future at the time that this happened, but we know is past to us, is that Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. He was our substitute. He bore the wrath of God that each one of us deserved. Our sin deserved to be punished for all of eternity. And yet Jesus stepped in our place for all who would believe. He took the wrath of God upon himself that we might receive forgiveness. He received condemnation. We received salvation. Friends, that is the life gate that is open to us, but it requires a humbling of our hearts, just like this woman, to fall down trembling before Jesus and say, God, I've sinned. I am am guilty as charged. Your word is true. My heart is desperately wicked. God, you know it. I can't hide it from you. Just like this woman realized that she couldn't remain hidden, we all need to realize we can't remain hidden with our sin. That God knows, but he's provided a way of salvation for us. Do not miss that salvation for yourself today. Don't continue hiding in your sin. Don't continue fooling yourself and fooling your family and fooling all the people around you thinking that you can put on the show of righteousness. You can't. You will be found out. If it is not in this life, it will be in the next. You cannot escape what Almighty God knows. I think even this reference here to a daughter foreshadows the reality that those of us who have trusted in Jesus become adopted into the family of God, that we are sons and daughters of God, and we can cry out to God our Father, Abba, Father, because he has brought us into his family. And so I ask you this morning, are you trusting in Jesus? Have you repented of your sin? Have you gone to him for forgiveness? Because you can go in peace by trusting in him. Well, let's finish this morning by looking at our final lesson, and we'll do this quickly. 
The fourth lesson we learn is to trust Jesus when death strikes. To trust Jesus when death strikes. Well, the, the story jumps back in verse 49 to the story of Jairus. He's been anxious, as we've said. He's been waiting for this crowd to move on, and yet Jesus stops. He deals with this, this uh, healing of this woman, and he's wondering, Jesus, are you ever going to get to my house? Verse 49, though, brings the gravest news. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Can you imagine the sledgehammer that this news was to this father at this moment? All these people are around, and yet he receives the most devastating news. Your daughter is dead. His fears have become a reality. But notice that Jesus moves in quickly. Does not allow this, this man to be shaken in his faith. He says, verse 50, but Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. In other words, he doesn't even allow Jairus to answer. He answers in his place and says, do not fear, only believe, and you will be well. And she will be well. Trust, Jairus. Trust me. Trust me, I am able to make her well. And so they continue to move on towards the house. There are mourners there. They would hire professional mourners who would weep in order to aggravate or, or, or announce the death. And the burial would happen quickly as well. But as they get there, it says, verse 51, when they came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with them except Peter, John, and James. These are called the inner three. Three disciples were able to get special access and we'll see this throughout Jesus' time on earth, that he allows these three to get more access than others, than the other disciples. He brings them in to witness this miracle, as well as the father and the mother of the child. As they're going in, and these weeper, weeping, those who are weeping and the mourners are leaving, Jesus tells them not to weep. Notice verse 52, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. She's sleeping. And verse 53 says they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. They're like, who do you think we are? Do you think we can't tell a dead person? I mean, we have our, all our ways of checking to make sure someone's truly passed before us, the professional mourners, actually show up and start wailing. So listen, we've started to wail because we know she's dead. And they're like, who is this guy who says that she's, she's not dead? She's only sleeping. I mean, they, they just don't understand. Jesus, though, says that her death is as sleep. He's not saying that she's actually sleeping. He's saying her death is only such that it's like she's sleeping because he knows he's going to bring her back to life. She's going to wake her again. But Jesus doesn't even answer the laughs. He responds by acting in power. He goes into the room. He goes over to the girl, verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. Under normal circumstances, this would have defiled him. The law said that if you touched a corpse, you were defiled, and so they would have stayed away. But Jesus goes right up to her and grabs her little hand and calls out to her, child, arise. This would have been a call that would have been common, commonly spoken by her mother, even in the morning, to get up in the morning. Child, arise, let's go. And yet Jesus calls her in the same way from death as if she was only sleeping. And the text is clear. Verse 55, her spirit returned. She got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The, the miracle was complete. It was total. Just like the woman previously, this miracle, this healing was, was absolute. It went all the way. She didn't just come back but was still weak and ill. No, she was totally healed. 
And obviously her parents are amazed. Have to imagine that Peter and John and James were amazed as well to see it. And so Jesus tells her, listen, tells them, listen, don't go around telling people about this. You just focus on taking care of your daughter. I don't want those multitudes out there to get whipped up into a frenzy over this. I just want you to take care of your daughter. And friends, this is good news for us this morning. Jesus is able to break us out of the fallenness of this world. As I said when I started, Jesus didn't just get into the muck of this fallen world so that he would understand. He got in so that he could get us out, so he could be our rescuer. And this miracle here proves that he has the power to do that. Because the thing that binds all of us here is the power of death. Our sin and and Satan has bound us in that, the clutches of death. And yet Jesus is the mighty one who's able to break us free of those bonds. We know what is future to this is that he is the one who is going to be resurrected totally and completely and break the power. Finally, here this girl no doubt lived into adulthood, but she did die again. She was resuscitated here, but she would have to experience death yet again. But Jesus was the, the first to be resurrected never to die again. And it's because of his resurrection that he is able to then provide life to everyone who trusts and believes in him. Friends, we know the pain of losing family members in this life. But the power of Jesus on display here in this miracle reminds us that death will not have the final say. Jesus is the one that will have the final say in the end. He is stronger than death, and we must cling to him in faith. We must believe that he will raise us up on that last day and that he will raise up all who have believed in him. They are in his hands, and he has the power over death. And so we can truly say, hallelujah, what a savior. So how do we have hope on this Mother's Day? when we live in such a fallen and broken, sinful world, we come to realize what has been revealed about Jesus in this this tale of two daughters. We must see that Jesus is more powerful than anything, more than disease, more than death, and we must trust him with our lives and with our eternity. Do you trust Jesus that deeply? Let's close in prayer. Oh, God and Father, we ask that you would please drive the truths of this text into our hearts. May these not just be stories that took place 2,000 years ago, but may you help us to realize, Father, that, that we need the same Jesus as revealed here, that we will all one day face this Jesus, this one who has sovereignty and power over us. And may you help every heart here and listening to me this morning, to trust in Jesus, to depend fully, to recognize that if Jesus doesn't save, I am lost. Oh, Father, grant that faith. Grant the repentance from sin, and we will give you the praise as we sing hallelujah. What a Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, like the words of Jesus said on that day, go in peace because of what Jesus has done. You're dismissed.